It's your host, Jason Klom here. Uh, this episode is a weird one. It's a fun episode. I really enjoy it. It's uh, not really about a comedy album. A comedy album is at the center of the story, or at least at the center of the part that I'm most interested in. Um, being the selfish person that I am, that's the reason I was interested. That there is one comedy album at the center of this. It's actually about archaeology, and it's about a lot of other things. Um, but there is a comedy album at the center, and it happens to be a Bill Cosby album. Um, obviously, a man who spent his career reminding us just how human he is doesn't need any help from the show. But there are some stories in here that are the opposite of controversial. So just don't take their inclusion as any kind of endorsement. I don't have a big problem separating the artist and the art, but here, you know, we're getting nice stories like you'd expect about Bill Cosby. Um, so, you know, this was recorded several months ago before, you know, the bulk of these accusations, any of these accusations really became, uh, at least most of it became aware of them. Um, you know, we're told a lot of people in the entertainment industry already knew about it. But regardless, it's not about that. It's not really about Bill Cosby. There are nice stories. Take them as they are. Again, don't take them as some kind of an endorsement from us. Um, the other interesting perspective to look at is, again, this is only a few months ago, and at the time I was talking about, isn't it odd how somebody who is um, with us still and who still has this great shining career is the subject of an archaeological dig? Well, I think it's, it's appropriate now to be talking in archaeological terms about Bill Cosby and about his career. Uh, it's appropriate to be talking about it in technical terms, non-emotional terms. Um, so it's uh, it's a relief to talk about it in that way, actually. Um, but again, don't take it as, a, as any kind of uh, endorsement of him, um, even as a comedian. I, I love the comedy, I really do, but that's that's not the point of this episode. And I don't know if there, if, if there will ever be... Uh, I don't know how many Bill Cosby albums are even going to come up at this point on the show, um, except as afterthoughts. So enjoy this. Um, ponder why is there air? Um, because that's the name of the album. Uh, but also air is the reason things burn. That'll become significant as you hear the rest of the episode, but don't let it get you down. It's a fun episode. Enjoy it. Just know that we're good, nice people here at the Comedy on Vinyl podcast, and uh, we hear your concerns, and those concerns are ours as well. So enjoy this, listen to it for what it is, and uh, have fun. This week, I have somebody who is a un in a unique position to be <laughs> among us, and yet the subject of an archaeological uh, dig, uh, in, in a way. Um, and, uh, I'll have you tell the story, but her name is Maura McCoy and, uh, Maura is, uh, a documentarian among other things. Um, but uh, you'll know in a minute why I was kind of blown away by this story. I was born in actually Honolulu, uh, when my dad was in the Navy mm -hmm. back in the late fifties. And, um, we originally lived in Southern California. He is from Pasadena, which okay. is where he was born and raised. And, uh, we, uh, ultimately moved up to Marin County, just north of San Francisco mm -hmm. in the early sixties. So it was a time of kind of, of great change and excitement. And, uh, San Francisco was kind of the epicenter of that. And, uh, my father, and both my parents uh, ended up falling into that whole group of people who were trying to make a change in the world and uh, 
and and uh, the initial kind of what led to that was their contact with the with people in the entertainment industry. Uh-huh. So uh, entertainers, musicians, comedians. When you look at the counterculture of the 60s, people sort of look at uh, certain groups or certain people as, uh, you know, definitely um, vocal, uh, maybe the vocal minority, but definitely the voice of a certain generation or of a certain movement. You don't necessarily assume that they had a big enough impact to convince somebody who was independently wealthy to go on and change not only his own life, but the life of his family and a number of others. Exactly. I mean, my father, he was independently wealthy. He had inherited, uh, um, he had come into an inheritance of Mm -hmm. uh, about $500,000, which in today's dollars is somewhere around four, a little over four million. Yeah. When he moved to Marin County, uh, they decided to, wouldn't it be a great idea to uh, bring up a group of houseboats and create what they called a houseboat marina. And to them, it seemed like a great idea. Unfortunately, they it was kind of a, a big failure as far as selling these 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 homes. I yeah. mean, my dad used to talk about it with a laugh, but they had no luck at all. A lot of people came to look, and as he said, but no buyers. Right, right. <laughs> so that led to them. They had a salesman who was living in one of the houseboats, and he came to them one day and said, I know through a friend, I know some entertainers. My father was a, a little bit reticent at first, but sure. thought, well, why not bring in some money? And, and that really is what got the whole thing started with renting out the houseboats to different the different entertainers that came to stay there. Um but one of the people he ends up running into and and becoming close with is Bill Cosby. Yeah, Bill Cosby was definitely one of them. He you know, he was still very much on the upswing on his career. It was really still kind of in its infancy, mm-hmm. but it was right around the time that they uh that he had when he recorded Why Is There Air. Uh, there were also other comedians that stayed at the houseboats. Uh-huh. Um, Godfrey Cambridge was one of them, uh, who, of course, was, was real big at the time. Sure. Uh, Martha Ray, uh, although I don't remember her as, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember meeting Godfrey Cambridge. That was exciting. I just picked up on the excitement from the adults that he was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And then there were a number of musicians that stayed there as well. Um, probably the most famous uh, musician that stayed there was Otis Redding. And wow. as the story goes, and and what, the way we tell it is that that is where he wrote Dock of the Bay, uh, sitting on that houseboat looking out at the San Francisco Bay with the ships rolling in and out. And, um, you know, the houseboats were on a dock. So mm-hmm. even though he never really confirmed it, and he died not long after that, sure. um, you know, sadly, but that song is such a classic. And we always just kind of proudly, you know, shared that we knew that that's where he had written it. I I was uh, also very excited as a child because um, the Cosbys were, as he mentions in, in the album, they were just about to have their first child. Uh-huh. And my parents, who were a little older than them, than the Cosbys, uh, gave them our baby crib that we were no longer in need of. Awesome. And it was a beautiful wooden crib with... Uh, uh, painted a uh, little deer painted on one end of it that mm-hmm. had been really a uh, very uh, iconic object for me in my in my 
younger years as a yeah. child growing up. And so by the time the Cosby's came to say I was about nine years old, and I just remembered that, you know, being particularly proud of the fact that we gave our our crib to the Cosby's because That's again, amazing. you know, this was his third album, but you know, his he he was uh, starting to really make a name for himself, and right. and we knew I knew that was a big deal. Bill Cosby was a big deal, and yeah. the fact that he had this record, and I remember that album cover so so well. My father used to take all the vinyl, mm-hmm. the the album covers, and he put them up on the wall behind his desk oh, of that's all awesome. of the artists that had stayed. Uh, at the houseboats, and that's it was a great. pretty good collection. His career starts off. All you can do is tell stories about your own childhood. His whole new career, or who Bill Cosby was to everybody, started, you know, with him having a baby and learning what that's like. And I guess the album won the Grammy mm-hmm. the next year for the best comedy album. And um, yeah, I mean, it was great. My parents would go and and see him perform at the Hungry Eye, mm-hmm. which back in that day was a real mecca for uh, all entertainer any entertainers and uh, Lenny Bruce and um, uh, Godfrey Cambridge performed there my father um, after this period of time and he uh, met Bill Cosby he met some other entertainers as well and they were the first ones to kind of lead him down the path if you will um, and introduced him to pot and Mm -hmm. um, and acid and and he met a guy who who performed or used to perform with the uh, folk quartet called the limelighters uh-huh. who had a, had started a commune um in you know up in sonoma county and uh, so my father decided you know i'm going to take this money i have i'm tired of kind of the, the rat race mm-hmm. his friends his new friends were encouraging him to kind of drop out i mean uh, I, I want to be with my, you know, my new friends. I think we all, you know, need to live together. And and what happened was they ended up finding a place for all of them to live that was actually so large that they started inviting even other people to come and live. And ultimately he decided that that would become a commune mm-hmm. by, you know, not by any other name, but by that name, mm-hmm. and that place is a was a beautiful former um, uh, a, ter- a turn of the century uh, estate okay. that was called Olampali, which is an Indian name, and that's uh, it's now a state park. They lived there. Um, they moved in in late '67, and it was basically there was a mansion. And there was a beautiful uh, guest house that had been turned into a dormitory by the Jesuits, who were the ones who owned the property at the time, the University of San Francisco. (laughs) And um, we all went to live uh, as hippies at a commune, and it was uh, was really amazing and wonderful. You guys were living in the center of something. It wasn't media, but it was definitely culture, and it was definitely pop culture. I mean, were you guys wa- were you watching TV? Was there a TV? What's what's the picture of how, how you guys were getting information and, and entertainment? Well, I mean, that's a good question. TV was not a big part of what was going on up there. I, I have to tell you that this was obviously uh, pre-cable. Mm-hmm, and sure. I, as I recall, we probably did not get 
much, if any, t- TV reception. Okay. Um, okay. We were three miles north of the nearest town, and mm. and quite a ways north from San Francisco. So, it might have been partially because of that, mm-hmm. but I don't. It, the television was was not playing a big part um, there. We were um, really kind of entertaining ourselves. Music was was. Uh, a big part of the entertainment sure. that we would play records and um yeah i mean uh, we would go into san francisco uh we would attend uh, occasionally attend grateful dead concerts mm-hmm. or other concerts uh we would be able let you know go backstage because of course we were part of that inner circle basically, that's amazing that I, but that's yeah. that's i mean th- that's another thing in and of itself that your experience with pop culture and we, uh, there are a lot of comparisons you could draw that wouldn't be favorable to nowadays if you were living the same experience and getting to see who... If, 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 if you were in... Uh, there are plenty of people, especially in Los Angeles, who are in the inner circles of people who are popular and influential now, and I would have no interest being involved with those people. However, let's skip back to 1967, and e- there are bands that I don't even listen to now that just the idea of being among them would still blow my mind. On, on mm-hmm. so many levels. So, I mean, to be experiencing your culture, most of it firsthand, even if you had the records, you still get to experience so much of it first. You're, I mean, you're pretty young at the time, but was there a sense of what was happening at all? Or was it just, I love this, I'm enjoying the hell out of it? Well, I mean, I, I guess it was a little bit of both. Uh, I mean, I, I have to say to to see, um, well, my one of my favorite bands at the time, and I, and they had a couple hits on the on AM radio, which was basically you know what I was listening to, was Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh-huh. and I really love them. And I remember how excited I was one night when we went to a concert, and I, I really didn't know about these concerts. We were just kind of being taken here wherever by the sure, adults, sure. you know, when you're a kid, and seeing Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and and it, live in performance as a ten year old. I mean. <laughs> Wow, that's yeah. fantastic, and and then not to mention seeing Janis Joplin, oh. and uh, of course the Grateful Dead. We were almost always going to their concerts, mm. but to, you know there were a lot of other um, wonderful bands as well. Jefferson Airplane, of course, we went to their home, and wow. I mean it was it's funny to think of it now, but the Grateful Dead they all a lot of them lived in one house together, mm. and I always make an analogy a few years later, you know, when you'd watch the Monkees or the, the Beatles. <laughs> Uh, and you'd say, well, they don't all live, they're adults, they don't all live in a house together, that's silly, you know. But but in this case, they actually, you know, the Jefferson Airplane, there was a beautiful home that, that at least, you know, a number of them lived in. I remember that's visiting amazing. it. Mm-hmm. And and I know the Grateful Dead, uh, they had a, a place that had actually been like a boarding house that was right across the street, literally across the street from my mother's house. One of those things where you, you certainly did realize it at the time yeah um and yet it's also just kind of you're just there like you said you know you're just experiencing it unfortunately it did not last very long at all so 1968 kind of played out where my father actually left for a time he went to india Mm -hmm. found a guru that's a whole nother story sure um but when he got back at the beginning at the end of 68 and into the beginning of 69 there was a series of tragedies that that came about um the police came and busted the um the commune Mm -hmm. not once but twice within a one you know in the space of a week uh a number of the members were arrested uh 
uh, just a few weeks after the second bust in February, there was a an electrical fire and the half the mansion burned down this Oof. historic mansion but what happened when that mansion burned down is it revealed the adobe building that the house had been built up around by oh, wow. this by these uh, this Victorian uh, aristocrats that had owned the estate when they first came into possession of it mm-hmm. they this this adobe building was there and it had been uh, originally owned by, well, the Olimpali, the Miwok, uh, coastal Miwok tribe mm-hmm. uh, of Native Americans, and their last headman who had built this adobe structure, and um, so that and that was just this past uh, May dedicated as a um, you know California a state historical monument. Oh, that's um, great. Uh, or landmark, I should say. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, but that fire it, it demolished the mansion for the most part. Mm-hmm. The commune that was kind of the people kind of straggled and held on. There were still a few other buildings that people could live in, but the health department came down quickly and sure. said no one can live in that structure. You know, as, as you say, it's it's being dedicated. It's going to be preserved. It, well, if it's going to be preserved, the things that are not of the most uh, ancient relics are would otherwise be excised. It's a good thing that these are being held on to, studied, and it's because, I mean, here's the thing, you just told me this very involved story, and it's much more involved than that, that lasted a very, very, very brief period of time. So, right. and let's be frank, there are a lot of memories that are not going to be intact due to many of the things you just described to me. So, you know, it's why not have this outsider study it and from this interesting perspective, which happens to be vinyl. I wanted to take advantage of this break to tell you guys about a new podcast that's coming to the Stolen Dress Network. It's called Buddies in Space. It's hosted by Mike Carassi and his buddy Smike. Uh, you might have heard them on a recent episode of the Dan and Jay's Comedy Hour podcast a couple weeks ago. It's them geeking out, uh, being funny, and having a couple drinks. So they're the perfect sister podcast to Dan and Jay's Comedy Hour. I think you'll enjoy it. The first episode comes out this Friday, May 8th, and you'll see it every other Friday on StolenDress.com. You can also check them out um, on BuddiesInSpace.com. Give it a listen and let us know what you think. Well, my name is Brett Parkman. I'm a senior state archaeologist with California State Parks. And I work in the state parks of the greater San Francisco Bay Area. There's about 30 of them, including a place called Olimpali State Historic Park, one of my favorites. You come into the story 20 years later, originally? Oh, about 10 years later. Oh, 10 years later. Okay, wow. See, that's that's even more interesting to me. I mean, we, we were talking about how how kind of comically absurd it is that something can be gone for only 10 years, but all of a sudden it is this snapshot in history that... that needs to be preserved and needs to be studied but it's it's you know you know traditionally we don't think of anything only 10 years old as being worth studying but i i love that you found you found an interest in this well you know something that's 10 years old will someday be 110 years old Mm -hmm. if and if it's significant and you know it's going to be significant when it's 110 years old the best thing is to look at it when it's 10 years old because there's still people around you can talk to like mora who remember so if we'd have waited you know 100 more years uh, I don't know that we could have done as much as we've done. That makes sense. Um, now, so 
again, I, I know I'm going to be nitpicking because obviously I have a comedy podcast, but I do want to get into the fact that you found this, you know, you found a pile of records. Uh, uh, why don't you tell me about finding them, what it was like, and why that became significant to you, and how fast that became significant to you? You know, I went out there in um, uh, January 1981, so actually 12 years after the fire. Okay. And I was sent out to study this new park and to find everything I could having to do with history. And I went into the burned-out hulk of this former mansion, and there on the floor was a pile of records and some little fragments of tie-dye clothes and some other various artifacts. And it was actually like a little pile from the fire debris, and I looked at it and said, what's hippie artifacts? I kept going. But I came back about an hour later, and I was looking at some of the records, and you could still see some of the labels at the time. And the one on the very top was a Beatles record. And I thought, well, that's that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the next couple of weeks, I started thinking I really should collect or record a document as part of this flow of history, because this park had 8,000 years of history, real significant history. Wow. And this was just yet one more chapter. So that's kind of how it began. So actually, from the first day, I had a fascination, but it took me years to actually do anything. The records were perfectly safe inside a fenced-in building. Over the years, the building began degrading, and the records started suffering, and that's when the decision was made to collect some. And what I found out is there was a lot more there than just Beatles, and that's what makes this whole story interesting. There was Bill Cosby, for example. Exactly. Now, did was the uh, was were you familiar with that album when you saw it in there? I was actually. I'd listened to it before before I went out there. It was one of my favorite. I, I like Bill Cosby a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of the recordings. Uh, Driving in San Francisco has always been one of my favorites because I had the identical experience first time I drove in San Francisco with a clutch that slipped. And uh, so I, I love the. Album. I didn't listen to it when it came out in '65. I probably heard it first in the early 70s, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorites. Was that one piece of comedy significant, or the idea that they had just the one sample, or was that, that just seem typical? It's the only comedy album I've identified so far. There's 93 records, I've identified 55. So for all we know, there are other records, possibly other Bill, Rec- Bill Cosby records. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now it stands alone, but it's a beautiful record. If you're gonna have just one of that genre, it's a really good one. Uh, I think the fine, I, I can picture, I don't know how often it was listened to at the commune, but it's easy to picture a room full of hippies listening to that album, unlike some of the others I found. Right. Yeah. Now that's uh, and that's where you got where you had uh, sort of the theme of of your piece because you got to write something about it that that where you really got to, you know, you you found something that you considered to be atypical of the group. So what out of the fifty five out of the other fifty four the non comedy albums, what kind of stuff did you come across well there was uh, there was a lot of jazz there was Ella Fitzgerald. there were a lot of musicals show tunes uh, West Side Story, South Pacific Kismet uh, someone really liked musicals there was Burl Lives. there was Ken Kesey's, Ken Kesey's acid test everything from Burl Lives to Ken Kesey Wow there was Beatles. Uh, there were a couple great albums from that time period. Uh, Super, the uh, Super Session mm-hmm. with Stills and, and that one. Uh, wow. Vanilla Fudge, mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. Uh, just sort of a who's who of all types of uh, all types of music, but uh, a lot of pop, a lot of musicals, some country western, a lot of jazz. 
a little bit of rock, um, just about everything. I don't think I found opera. I think that's the only genre I don't think I've seen. And with any, when you luck, it'll be in one of the unidentified. So Bill Cosby stood out as the comedy album, and there may be more, but right now there's just that one. But what a great album, though. No, of course. Do you, was it significant to you because it was sort of uh, a lot of the stuff was very mainstream or quote unquote square or quote unquote straight? Or was it also, did, does, it, does it say something about the fact, at least in speaking to Maura, she, she does, she reminded me a few times, she's like, you know, some of these people, you know, they had to, it was a gradual development from, from square to hippie. So I'm, I'm just curious where, where that all falls on that timeline. I found, uh, so I have 93 records. They came from at least four different locations in the house. Mm -hmm. The first ones I saw, I'm pretty sure I know who they belong to. They belong to the oldest female member of the commune, Sandra Barton. Right. And I think the musicals, I think the musicals were hers. But records are found elsewhere. So I think we have two things. We have records that were brought to the house as people became hippies. Records that were sort of cultural baggage. Things they listened to before they put flowers in their hair. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the records that people either acquired or were actively listening to during that time. Bill Cosby could be either. But like I say, I can envision Bill Cosby being an album that they'd be sitting around listening to in 68. Burl Lives is a hard one. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that Burl Lives was something somebody brought along and probably didn't listen to a lot once there. But that's just a guess. Right. Yeah, I mean, you do... I. I... I guess that's the hard part and the interesting part that, again, even 100 years, again, if it was 100 years later instead of 112 years later, there are always things you're going to have to guess at. Is is that frustrating for you or is that the creative part of it for you, trying to figure out the math of it? I like the math. I like filling in those gaps as long as you have reason. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm trained as a scientist. So sure. I tried to do the scientific method. And... Uh, so I've asked, I've talked to a bunch of people that lived in the commune in addition to Mora. And I've asked people, do you remember sitting around listening to Burl Ives or to the musicals? And no one remembers that. Okay. They remember listening to the Beatles, the White Album. Uh, everybody talks about listening to the White Album in 68. And Grateful Dead, the first Grateful Dead album, which I haven't identified yet. It may be one of the unidentified records, but a number of people recall listening to the first Grateful Dead album. Huh. But uh, I haven't, most of them, though, I haven't found, and I suspect that a lot of the records I've identified were not actively listened to during the two years of the commune. Okay, I could be wrong though. That makes that makes sense. It, it's interesting. There, uh, I mean, there are a number of uh, things that we talk about on my podcast a lot, and you know, uh, a lot of it is nostalgia that we talk about. But the thing is, you you are in a unique position as an archaeologist to. Uh, I won't say justify nostalgia because that's not what you're doing. You, you're investigating these things that people are nostalgic about and coming up with a truth about them. Um, one of the things that we talk about, though, that I think is fairly common uh, or was common and isn't anymore is, uh, to use the word commune again, communal, uh, about you know comedy and specifically comedy on vinyl. Um, and that's a thing that I feel like if you were to, if, if there were something like this commune today, burns down in 12 uh, burns down today and then you know 10 years down the line you're not going to find the same thing because everything's digital or it's cds uh, just because there's less vinyl there's less of a for lack of a better word record absolutely yeah i think i think the very fact that these vinyl records or artifacts says something mm -hmm. you can still find them i still see them at the flea market and you know there's used record stores 
but they're sure harder to find now. And uh, vinyl was beautiful, you know? I think it's still the best sound there is. Yeah. But it's not as convenient as some of these other things that we're doing now. But, you know, another thing in the commune, in addition to listening to commercial music, they were making a lot of music. Right. And the records are just a small part of what I found. I found toothbrushes, hair combs, toothpaste, perfumes. I found shoes, clothes, pocketbooks, jewelry. I found uh, a few things they probably wished I hadn't found. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything in between. In between, the one thing I found that they probably wished I found a lot of steak bones and pork chop bones. And yet, three months before the fire, the commune was in the newspaper saying we're all vegetarians. <laughs> Something changed. Uh, somebody was eating a lot of uh, uh, steak at the end. But but the records are really really special. But I found parts of guitars. I have a lot of photos of them making music. Mm-hmm. And if you think about even today. If you're alone or you're a couple people, you might be listening to music. But if you get a bunch of people in the house, chances are you'll make music. Yeah. Someone will be a musician. And rather than having 20 people sitting around listening to a, an album, chances are you'll be playing a guitar or something. Not always, right. but often, I would guess. So I think the math there says that the more people, the less likely you're going to be just sitting on the sofa, you yeah. know, listening. Is, uh... And that's what the 60s was about. Is this unique for you uh, in that it's, uh, I mean, is it the only sort of near history thing that you've worked on? Or what's, what kind of projects have you worked no, on? No, I, I, I do it all. I've been an archaeologist for 40 years now. Mm-hmm. And I've worked on five continents as an archaeologist. Wow. So, but, but, you know, California is where I call home. And this sure. is where I actually work for a living. The other places I work for research or pleasure but I've become more or less a contemporary archaeologist. So I've excavated a second commune, and I'm currently studying a Marine Corps reserve unit that trained at one of the state parks in the 1960s. Wow. So I'm doing interviews in archaeology of the battlefield as these Marines were preparing to go to war. Yeah. And I'm finding some similar things. I'm finding that uh, even recent history, archaeologically, we can learn from it. Yeah. And like I'm learning from this hippie history, I'm also learning from the Marine Corps history. And it's only now 40 years old. Yeah. But the people are still alive, the officers and the riflemen. And I can look at what I'm finding in the field and then ask them about it. And on any one day, I have hippies and Marines upset with me. Because sometimes <laughs> I ask hard questions. In, in every, any given day, you, you, you have to ask very tough questions. I'm curious... Uh, uh, what kind of questions those are? If you can, if you're allowed to talk about this kind of, I assume so. But well, with the Marine Corps Reserve Unit, I like to find out why people joined that reserve unit after 1965. Sure. In 1965, our president decided to expand the civilian draft mm-hmm. and not call up the reserves. Right. I think that reserve unit. I think some outsiders joined the reserve unit that really didn't want to be Marines. But they also didn't want to go to Vietnam. Of course. So in doing, in doing the archaeology, uh, I look at the archaeological sites that date from 66 to 69, and I think I might see something different. These are the trash pits and the sleeping areas for the Marines. So I'm looking at morale, mm-hmm. the archaeology of morale. And by 68, the morale was low in the military. And I think I see it in this reserve unit. In 62, 63, it's a different, different situation. Same thing with Mora's commune. The chosen family, Olimpali, the first year was closed. 
Okay. You had to be invited in. The second year they opened and they got overwhelmed by newcomers, some of whom shouldn't have been there. And that led to you know some of the problems that got the commune uh, kicked out. Right. So same thing with this Marine Corps unit. In 65, it was closed. The only people that really wanted to be Marines were in there. After Johnson decided to expand the draft, some people realized you could serve your country honorably by being a part of the unit and never get deployed to Vietnam. So different types of people came in. At Olin Poly, four of the six men that founded the commune were vets. Two had just gotten back from Vietnam. Uh, the Marine Corps unit I interviewed, I interviewed some of the riflemen that were in there in 66, and they called themselves hippies. So right. the hippies are Vietnam vets, and the, the guys training in the Marine Corps uniform sometimes are hippies. That's what I find interesting. Definitely. And we have to do that now. You know, in 50 or 100 years, people are gone. We won't get that information. Is there any popular culture evidence there, or is this is it a lot? Is there none of that kind of stuff there? It, the archaeological record, I have some evidence, but not... I, have, I do have some evidence. Uh, what I'm looking at is uh, disposal of... Uh, unspent ammunition. And I had stories how, you know, people would unload their load if no one was watching. It's kind of scant evidence. It's mostly from the interviews. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed the officers in charge and the officers that were in charge prior to 1965 describe a different problem of morale than the officers from 66 on. The morale issues early on were very different than the morale issues later. Mm -hmm. And I can see some of that in the archeological record. Same thing at Olin Poly. The archaeological record for the first year looks a little different than the archaeological record for the second year. And I see that with things like uh, beer cans and liquor bottles and all the steak bones in the kitchen. You can see that some of the early rules changed. And I think they changed when the commune got overwhelmed with outsiders. That See that? Okay, I see that. Um... You know, it's funny, like, somebody, again, as interested as I am specifically in the comedy part of it, or at least in the pop culture part of it, um, you know, you're dealing with, like, <laughs> you're having to even just figure out what some of these records are because of the condition they're in. So, I mean, that that's rough. So, I mean, you, is there anything that you can draw? Well, see, I guess, like, if there is just the one comedy album... Like you say, you, you, you can picture them listening to it, but it's not one of those things that you're going to have overwhelming evidence of, I guess, especially in the face of, of all these other records that they have. Because um, I, I guess you would know more about... What I'm saying is you'd know more about them, I guess, if you knew more of what kind of comedy they were listening to. Of course, they are in an area... They were in an area where they could go to the Hungry Eye and see comedy live. Yeah, yeah right, right. There were actually uh, performers as part of the commune, mm -hmm. and one was a comedian. Um, Jojo, I forget Jojo's real name, and he was actually a professional comedian. There okay. were also singers and musicians. So, uh, um, but you're right though, being just uh, 40 minutes from San Francisco, 30 minutes from San Francisco, actually been now 40 minutes, uh, there was so much available. Yeah. Um... But I, ha I, I haven't asked everybody about the Cosby album. And, you know, sooner or later, someone might say, oh, yeah, we, we listen to that, you know, religiously. Yeah. I just have to do more questioning. Sure. Uh, like I say, I, I would imagine that was probably one that was downstairs. Downstairs being the communal area. Okay. And not in one of the bedrooms. And that's, but and, I don't know for sure. 
And that's the other thing too that this uh, again, if uh, you know, uh, if you, if even if you were to find records in a in a in a site from today, it would mean something completely different. It would mean that there was a collector, whereas you have to if you skip back forty years, it m- must mean or likely means that there were people were getting together and listening to comedy albums. There were party albums at this point. Something it's a phenomenon you don't yeah. see anymore. Yeah, yeah, right, right. No, we've we've lost that. There's uh. There's several uh, reel-to-reel tapes that I found that I haven't looked at yet. Oh, wow. Uh, there's four of those, and they might be commercial. I mean, they might be Beatles, or, you know, right. but they also might be something that was recorded there. Yeah. And because of who was there, Bill Cosby, I don't know if Maura talked about Bill Cosby's relationship with her dad, mm-hmm. but her dad and Bill Cosby were friends. Yeah. Uh, Grace Lick, the Grateful Dead, a lot of people passed through Olin Poly, and I have this, I have this hope that on one of those tapes, it's like a jam session. Oh. People talking, joking, playing, and maybe you have Garcia or Bill Cosby or you know who knows. Uh, the tapes are in pretty good condition. I think we can lift the the uh, the words off of them, oh. the voice off of them. I just haven't had a chance to do that. Yeah, the hard part with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually... I'm actually dealing with that very type of thing right now. Nothing that was, you know, involved in a fire, even in the vicinity of a fire. Thank goodness, knock on wood. But, um, you know, and everybody I'm talking to says, be very careful. You might only get to play it once. So uh, I guess uh, that's rough, huh? Well, I want to I want to transfer it to digital. Mm-hmm. And I, there's, there's that technology, as you know better than me. And I think it's worth taking the chance to capture whatever's on the tape. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so here down the road at some point, I'll try to do that. That's awesome. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm excited to, to hear whatever. It doesn't even matter if it's mundane. That makes it, to me, that makes it more interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm an amateur historian when it comes to the vice presidency, so I, I have an interest in the obscure and in the unappreciated. I'm curious as a person who is doing original research if, if that is in any way, of, it's got to be. I, I don't want to assume. I don't know you that well. But I, is that of interest to you, just the stuff that nobody understands and knows about? That's my middle name. Yeah. That's who I am. I've, uh, I do what other people don't want to do or don't see. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing it most of my career. So if, if, you, well, if you Google me on the Internet, you'll see some of the things I work on. And uh, I'm, I, I like doing everything. But I figure there's a lot of people out there who can take care of the mainstream. Yep. You know, uh, it's those edges. And ultimately, it's working on the edges that advance us as a society. Sure. Whether it's arts, you know, literature, science, uh, you've got to have people at the boundary pushing. And so that's why I'm, I'm studying the Marine Corps, the recent Marines, people that are only a few years older than me. Yeah. Uh, in a hundred years, it'll be good. I always wanted to be a battlefield historian. When I was a kid, growing up in the South, I grew up in Georgia. Mm-hmm. I wanted to become a Civil War historian. Sure. And we traveled, we traveled around during the centennial, and I just I found myself wishing I could have been an archaeologist or a historian the day after yeah. Gettysburg, oh. or the day after Antietam. Interview the guys that fought, interview, look at the site before it got scavenged. Mm-hmm. So it at this park, Annadale, with the Marine Corps, it's kind of like being able to do that. Capture the information before it's destroyed, forgotten, or buried, yeah. or dies off in severe disaster. And whether it's Olin Polly or the Marines, uh, so I, I like things like that. But I also work. I, I worked with. Uh, I worked with the Ice Age, the Pleistocene, 
-hmm. And I do environmental reconstructions of what our areas looked like when we were rich with mammoth and bison. Mm. And here a number of years ago, I found what I call mammoth polish, rocks that had been polished by mammoths. And you can find that out there. So, so I like it all, but I mostly end up, I go places where a lot of people aren't going. Mm -hmm. And you find things there. You find things in places that no one's looked, either in your mind or in the field. Yeah. And I think great comedians, that's what great comedians do. Yeah. They go out somewhere. I think of Jonathan Winters. I would have loved to see Jonathan Winters at the Hungry Eye. Oh. Uh, I came to California in 1971. I went to the Hungry Eye. It had become a strip club. Oh. But I grew up. I grew up with the Beats, and you know, and Jonathan Winters and the Hungry Eye and all these the cellar and all these great places. And I got there a few years too late. So. Uh, but think about this, Robin Williams. You know, mm -hmm. uh, he, he pushes the boundaries. And as a result, uh, it changes. It changes lives. So, so yeah, that's that's the archaeology I want to do. See, that's that, that's amazing, and I'm in no way gonna I'm in no way gonna compare myself to what you do because what you do is is legitimate, important work. Uh, but, you know, at the very least, I can I can feel a kinship in that there there's always something there's something to, important to be found in the stuff that nobody necessarily cares about or stuff that wasn't important might not be important in and of itself, but what it says about the time, what it says about the people who listen to it, you know what I'm saying? So that's, I'm just fascinated that there's any connection that you found, you know, that, and that, uh, there's this, you know, that, that pop culture gets to mean something in a different way because a lot of people place this value on pop culture nowadays, whereas you, you found a way to make it mean something different. Eventually it'll be our ancient history. Right. You know, it won't be pop culture. It'll be our ancient history. But I love, I, I'd love to know more about the vice presidents because I read something that you were doing that, mm -hmm. and it's fascinating because we all know the vice presidents carry a heavy load, but they're in the back. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our history, a lot of our accomplishments, and also defeats are probably based on their their input and work. Oh yeah. And you can probably know as much about a, a community or a society or a country by studying the vice president as you can by the president, given that the president's often the front man or the figurehead. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, I'd be very... It's, I'd be very interested in reading more. Well, and uh, and we're you know we are working on a documentary. We have been working on it for almost ten years now. But you know it's one of those things we hope to finish. It's but it's it's a long slog, as I'm sure you can appreciate. How how long now? From what I understood, it took you a while to actually get even get access to the the records physically because they were surrounded by asbestos, et cetera, et cetera. They were uh, no, I had access, but I didn't have reason or purpose. I see. I, I see. figured eventually. I figured eventually I'm going to collect some of the records, put them in storage, and in a hundred years people will be happy. I see. And that lasted for about 15 years. 15 years later, the building began leaking. The records were degrading. Uh -huh. The state wanted to clean up the fire debris. So that's when I went out to collect, and that's when I found out there was a problem with asbestos. Uh -huh. So what happened is the records got put into a hazmat uh, series of containers, and then more recently, a few years ago, we were able to clean them up. Did you learn anything about the specific type of degradation? Did that in any way tell you anything about anything, or was it just you knew what had happened because you'd seen them in their original condition? I watched I watched the uh, the process over well 25, 30 years almost. So, but what I did find, and so so the record the records all got damaged. None of them will play. I tried to play some of the best looking ones and couldn't get anything to play. Um, as a scientist, I thought, well, that's how I can identify them. I'll listen, you know. Yeah. So nothing, nothing would play. <clears throat> there, there's something at Berkeley. There's a machine called Irene. 
that would make all of those play. I actually saw it a few years ago. Wow. It was developed by the uh, Lawrence Livermore Berkeley Lab for Library of Congress, where Congress has all these books degrading, and it's a way to scan them really fast. It can also scan music. And we took down some old records from Jack London, and they were able to play them without touching them. Wow. Fabulous. Wow. Uh, but they take millions, it takes millions of photographs per second as it turns, and then it goes through a computer, and they make a mathematical formula for sound, wow. and then they play it back. Holy cow! But I don't have I don't have I don't have the ability. If if Berkeley if they took pity on me, I could take this to them, and they could make this play again. Yeah. So there is the technology out there, but uh, it's it's hard to come by. So, uh, but what I've done, you know, I've looked at I've looked at the records, and what's really interesting is now I know. Uh, the cardboard covers for 33 and a third albums mm -hmm. provide certain amount of protection for fire oh. because all of the records, this is, this is an unusual one, the Bill Cosby, it's burned all the way around. Most of the records are burned for about 30% of the disc. Mm -hmm. And that's the portion of the disc that was exposed if it wasn't in the sleeve. Okay. And wow. uh, so I'm using that now to try to figure out which records were stacked, which records. I'm trying to use that as a way to prevenience them. Wow. Some records are badly burned, some aren't. Does that mean they were in different rooms? So I'll be able, you know, and most of this I'm just doing on my own time. This mm. is a, a work of love, but over the course of the next few years, I'll keep stabbing at it, and I think I'll learn more and more. Uh, is it valuable? I don't know. Knowing the names of the album is valuable. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Knowing which rooms they were in, you know, possibly. But it's fun, and it's what you do, like we talked about, when you're working at the edge of your field. Uh, you push forward and maybe you determine that wasn't necessary or even a good idea. So uh, it's all at the end of the day, it's a lot of fun. I like working with, I love vinyl. Mm -hmm. I don't have any vinyl in my house anymore. I got rid of my turntable years ago. I kind of wish I'd kept it now. Yeah. But uh, I grew up with vinyl and I'll always remember going to the record store, you know, as a kid, my allowance getting a new 45. Mm -hmm. uh, as an adult, you know, and the, 60s and 70s and i missed that it's not quite the same i i now download itunes sure onto my smartphone and you know it's beautiful but it's not like having that brand new black piece of vinyl uh, i well, love that i mean that's it, another part of our history. go ahead sorry it's just part of our history you know it's part of that culture that we come from but kids be i have an eight-year-old son he doesn't know anything about vinyl he sure. will never experience it. you know it'll be something different for him yeah, it's different. I mean, I, I wonder what people are going to remember in the future. Obviously, they'll have plenty to remember. We all have memories. But, you know, the tangible, I think, will always be important. So I'm curious what's going to replace that, because pop culture at one point was almost exclusively tangible or almost exclusively memory-based. You had to go to a movie, have an experience there, and that's why you remembered the good movies. You bought an album, you held onto it, you read through it. You looked at the cover, that's why you remembered it. That's why it, it stuck with you. So I'm curious, you know, I don't, I, I'm not going to know what, what, the, what what's going to matter to the next couple generations, but I'm curious. It is changing faster and faster. You know, we lived with vinyl for uh, several generations. And now I look at the technology, how fast it's changing. You know, I went from vinyl to an 8-track. I had an 8-track in my car mm -hmm. in 1970. And then in the 80s, the cassettes. And then the CDs, and now uh, it's just changing so fast that we may not keep a way of doing it so long that it becomes ingrained in us like the vinyl was. Vinyl was around for a long time.
Yeah, that's and it's not completely gone. No, no, exactly. And and there there's still a resurgence. Even luckily, there are a couple companies that do, you know, exclusively comedy albums, uh, and a lot of them do vinyl. And people are keeping it alive, luckily, but it, it becomes, for a lot of people, it's nostalgia. But for me, you know, that's why I like obscure records. I like, you know, again, it's not scientific for me. It's because I'm a writer and I'm a creator. I get to just play with the imagination part. I don't get to... To actually figure out, because I have no idea who owns such and such, unless I go to an estate sale. Sometimes so, that's that's as close as I'm going to get. It, sometimes I'm like, well, oh, here's this person's name. How old were they? Oh, what religion were they? Oh, they own this. They own that. That's fun for me. But it, you only get this limited amount of information. And again, I'm always still only looking at the comedy album. So there's your bias, the researcher's bias. That's <laughs> admittedly always going to be there for me. Something tells me he would get a kick out of the fact that we're keeping one of his old records. It's all badly burned and can never be played again. <laughs> and it's a treasure. It's an absolute treasure. That's so good. Well, Breck, th first of all, thank you for doing this. This has been a heck of a lot of fun. Um, uh, I'm only cutting it a little short because I've got to tack it on to the 45 minutes to an hour that I, sp I spent with Maura the other day because I could talk to you about the other stuff for a long time and I, I hope to keep corresponding with you. But this has been a ton of fun. Um, where can people find your work? Normally people are on Twitter and they've got their entertainment stuff, but where can people look up your work? Probably the best thing is just Google my name. Breck Parkman, easy enough. You'll find uh, yeah, just Breck Parkman Archaeologist. That's great. I, I And I'll make sure and put links on the blog so that people can find it. I'll obviously put, you know, as much links to whatever is, is relevant uh, because it, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, did you, I, I can't remember, she said, did you participate in the documentary too? Did Were you interviewed for that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's great. Okay. See, I, I that's why I'm 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 very interested in documentaries that 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 give credence to the academic part of of things is because I love personal perspective, but I do like every once in a while to get get an outsider who has had a chance to you know concentrate on on the subject at hand. I'm a documentary filmmaker myself too, so I like to get an outsider's perspective to mix in with all the people who are involved because. You know, yeah. you know, it, it colors it. It's what's it's it's often your only record, as you know, but it still colors it in this different way. So I'm I'm fascinated. Well, um, yeah. first of all, thank you very much for doing this. Um, and thank you for the invite. And thank you for your awesome work. And everybody, thank you for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com. Hey everybody, at the end of the show, we want to also make sure that we mention that Maura McCoy's uh, film about the Olympali commune is called Olympali, A California Story. You can find uh, information about it at uh, facebook.com slash Movie. that's O-L-O-M-P-A-L-I movie. All the information is up there. We're looking forward to seeing the movie, obviously, here. Uh, very excited about that, but wanted to make sure that you went there. And uh, I will make sure to put links up to uh, Breck Parkman's information, including uh, the report that he wrote uh, about the Olin Poly commune. Thanks so much.